Welcome to Let's Talk. This is Dr. Hassan Batts. I'm in the studio with Ruth Santiago, a community and environmental lawyer. Ms. Santiago, it is a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you, Dr. Hassan Batts, and I'm delighted to be here back in Bethlehem and uh, visiting my old community that I still keep in touch with every now and then. Listen, let's let's jump right in because you just claimed Bethlehem. So, so tell us about how you got here, like your journey, your connections to the community, all about Ruth. Okay. So I was born in the South Bronx uh, many years ago. And when I was six years old, my parents moved to Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. I lived in Pembroke and later on Fountain Hill. Wow. And I went to elementary school in in Bethlehem. What school did you go to? Well, the last one I went to was Stevens on Fountain Hill, Mm -hmm. um, which I think no longer exists. And then later I came back for college and went to Lehigh University. Shout out to Lehigh, huh? Yeah. How was that? Rough, hard. Was it? <laughs> Very challenging. How so? Um, oh, in many ways. In many ways. Uh, academically, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to make adjustments. Um, I had never seen my first semester. I'd never seen so many C's in my life wow. altogether. And so in terms of academics, uh, very hard. And also in terms of the what was happening at the time where Lehigh was... Uh, I guess, trying to transition mm-hmm. and to attract a more diverse student body okay. and, and faculty and just generally personnel, administrative employees. So uh, that was challenging. What years sure. are we talking about? Uh, 77 through 80. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was a, a ch- So you've seen a lot of change in the Valley just in general. Absolutely. I mean, now walking around town is is um, lots of things that are not so familiar. Lots That's of right. new buildings. We yeah. certainly Lehigh has expanded incredibly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when I was here, the Bethlehem Steel was still in operation. Was it? Yes. In wow. fact, our class trips in elementary school were to Bethlehem were Steel. Were to the Bethlehem Steel. Yeah, to watch the steel making so process. There was no casino. There was no no oh, arts no. quest. Any of that? No, 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 none of wow. that. It was just a lot of. Hardworking, working class people, mm-hmm. uh, very diverse, mm-hmm. wonderful neighborhoods. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And where do you live now? I live in Salinas, Puerto Rico, which is on the southeastern coast okay. of, of the archipelago of Puerto how, Rico. How long have you been there? Oh, most of my life. So um, have you seen, a, you've seen a lot of changes in Salinas also? Not as many, no. Okay. Not as many. But yeah, it's sort of, it's, it's interesting because I moved to Salinas um, when the Aguirre Power Complex was being built. It's mm-hmm. the largest electrical facility in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of saw the whole trajectory and development of that okay. huge industrial infrastructure. And, and how do you spend your time? I work with community and environmental groups trying to achieve some measure of environmental justice mm-hmm. and racial justice for mm-hmm. especially Afro-descendant communities in southeastern Puerto Rico and through, throughout the archipelago. So you say environmental justice. What does that mean? I mean, many of our listeners may not be familiar with that term. Yeah, it means basically the fair treatment of all people, including people of color, Afro-descendant, and brown and indigenous peoples in terms of the amenities of that the environment offers, right? right. And, and it means clean air and clean water and access to green spaces. That's right. And just many other benefits that sort of Anglo and, and majority populations enjoy to a greater extent. My, my wife is a farmer, and she always tells me uh, clean air and clean water are basic human rights. I agree. And that we don't think about it. I mean, you, you obviously think about it daily and constantly. It's on your mind. But for a lot of folks, especially folks of color, we don't think about it, right? Yeah. 
So you keep going back to this idea of Afro-Latino, Afro-communities. I know the United Nations has declared this the decade of people of African descent. And what does that mean when we talk about environmental justice? I mean, why is that important, right? Like, like you talk about indigenous communities, people of African descent. Why is that important? Well, because what we're seeing, not just in the U.S., but basically throughout the world, and especially in the global south, mm-hmm. there's an overburdening by polluting activities mm-hmm. on largely people of African descent and brown and indigenous people compared to, say, the global north and more affluent communities. Um, So that overburdening means that, as you mentioned, a lot more air pollution. And this has been proven. There are studies and studies and very recent ones, especially things that uh, Dr. Bullard, Bob Bullard, has compiled that show that, for example, African-American communities in the states are much more exposed to particulate matter 2.5, which is the the small kind of pollution that gets deep into people's lungs and bodies Mm. and creates serious problems, not just respiratory disease, but also cardiovascular, cancer, Mm -hmm. skin ailments, all kinds of things. So that's the the struggle for environmental justice is sort of um, a fusion of the civil rights movement, what was the civil and is the civil rights movement and also the traditional environmental law. And and it's a struggle for, as we mentioned, fair treatment. Fair. So so we hear about things uh, like Flint, Michigan, right? When, when it explodes, we hear about it on CNN. Why should we care before it's on the news? Yeah, uh, I think if we care before, we avoid lots of deaths, hmm. right? So water pollution, of course, can be very serious can have really adverse impacts to public health. That's right. Now, I remember when the Flint disaster was being uncovered that people were talking about just a little bit of lead in mm-hmm. water can immediately cause neurological damage to That's children. Right. Yeah. I work with uh, some masterminds with the black men. We do retreats, right? And they sit around the eight dimensions of wellness, one of which is environmentalism, right? And, and oftentimes people will say, well, why should I care why that's important? And you're saying because if we don't care, lots of deaths can occur. That's powerful. Um, You're also an environmental health advocate. Say a little bit about what that means. Yeah, it's similar to what we were saying. Um, We're talking about, for example, transforming systems, Mm -hmm. radical transformational change Mm -hmm. of systems, like especially electric systems, so that the pollution is minimized or eliminated and we move to something that has less impacts on public health. And this is through organizing, through policy, through research? Like, What are the ways? How do we transform those systems is the question. I think ultimately is through community participation, mobilization, mm-hmm. and involvement. Um, we have to be ever vig- vigilant for our rights mm-hmm. or, or lose them. And that's the ultimate goal for people to, unfortunately, stay, you know, always have to be vigilant to, right. to protect rights. So show up, showing up to council meetings, showing up, standing in front of organizations. And you're an attorney, so there's some litigation involved also? Oh, yes. There's litigation involved for sure. And how did you get to this point? Like what, what made you be interested in the environment and law? Um, I think, um, in a sense, my interest in, in, in the environment sort of was initiated here in Bethlehem mm-hmm. because uh, having been born in the South Bronx, mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't have a lot of opportunity initially in my first years to uh, enjoy 
the natural surroundings, right? But it seemed like a world opened up to me when, and, to, and my family, and my very big family, when we moved to Bethlehem, okay. the green spaces, the the forests, the the lakes, the Saucon Park even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was something um, that we, certainly at that time when I was in New York, we had no access to basically. And so I guess that, as I said, planted the seed for my interest in the environment and outdoors and and at the same time for working with communities and and, um, being in community with diverse people because Fountain Hill was very much a place where different ethnicities came together, working class people came together. My neighbors on one side were African-American and indigenous. On the other side, they were Pennsylvania, Dutch, and Hungarian. Mm -hmm. In front of us, I remember we had a Polak and Mexican family and so on and so forth. And everyone got along. Well, we kids, it was a really interesting dynamic. We loved to play together, but we were definitely absorbing the prejudice within the larger society. Mm-hmm. And for example, mm-hmm. we had games about calling each other different uh, pejorative names, really. Yeah, yeah. Like ranking. Yes, we did. <laughs> well, we the did. dozens, we they d- call We it, did right? that. We did yeah. that. But we were community. And we right. and we did grow with each other wow. in, in many ways. That's beautiful. So you're also a member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a big deal. Tell us about that. Well, we call it the WeJack for short, right? The WeJack, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, a group of us, uh, about 25 people okay. from different parts of the United States, um, not just continental, but also territories mm-hmm. like Puerto Rico, that were asked, invited to participate and created under an executive order that President Biden signed okay. in January of 2021. Okay. And it's meant to tackle the climate crisis and center environmental justice as an administrative priority of the Biden administration Nice to elevate environmental justice and combat environmental racism at that level. At that a whole of government approach. So, so, so when you say you advise the president, you look at the issues, you look at the policies, you make recommendations. Like, is this real? Yeah, we do make very substantial recommendations. Right, it, sort of mid twenty twenty one, we made um, about hundred pages of recommendations uh, to the Biden yeah. administration. Mm-hmm. Since then, we've issued others, and we're still currently in the process of, of working on those things. I make a commissioner of African American Affairs to the governor. Um, so I'm somewhat familiar with, with that type of process, and it's always beautiful to hear that it's real, right? That it's not just performative, so to speak, or that, that it holds weight. So what are, if you were to think of one issue, and I know there are many, right, that you want our listeners to know about and to understand and to, you're smiling. <laughs> it's going to be hard. I mean, one or two, right? No, I've like, got one. Oh, do you? Okay. Yes, yes. Because you yes. started smiling immediately. Yeah, yeah. Right? So um, I, I guess everyone knows that about five years ago, well, five and a half years ago, Puerto Rico was struck by um, Hurricane Maria, mm-hmm. right? And um, maybe people have heard that our whole electric system was devastated mm-hmm. and knocked out. And in the best of places, people were that power for weeks or months. And in some places, up to one year without wow. power in Puerto Rico. And so uh, we've been working on energy issues for a long time, 
and mostly addressing the impacts from, as I mentioned, the power plants in the southeastern Puerto Rican area, right? So the biggest electrical facility and also the only coal-burning power plant are in southeastern Puerto Rico between Salinas and Guayama. And they seriously overburden the communities, especially coastal communities in, in those towns, in those municipalities. And so it's been a lifelong, I guess you could say a lifelong struggle of the groups that I work with and um, many, many people to uh, lessen those burdens, which are very substantial. You mean environmental burdens? Yes. And okay. the sort of from the pollution from the plants. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about not just air pollution, which many people think of what comes out of the stack. Yes, mm-hmm. that's that's a big problem. And we're in fact, what is known, what EPA calls a non-attainment area for sulfur dioxide emissions. And so that's one aspect. But many people don't realize that power plants also affect water quality and availability. Mm. And so, for example, these power plants, you'll note they're usually on a coast or near a river, and that's because they take a huge amount of water out of those water bodies, for example, for the cooling process related to the boilers. Mm -hmm. And so that means competition with local communities for water use. Competitions for for local communities for water use. To the extent that in Salinas, Puerto Rico, for example, during droughts, which of course we're going to see more of with the climate crisis, Mm -hmm. we're seeing more of with the climate crisis, water is rationed. Is it? Two or three days. A week. And not every year, but for example, in 2019, 2014-15, we had, and so our increasingly elderly population goes without water water for two or three days a week when there's a drought. And yet the power plants continue to extract. Uninterrupted access to water. Exactly. And they provide power for, especially the northern part of Puerto Rico, the San Juan metro area. And continue to operate while the southern portion is called the sacrifice zone, is known in, in the environmental justice parlance. It's the sacrifice zone. It's um, what Dr. Ilda Jorenz calls the periphery of the periphery, Puerto Rico being as a territory, a periphery. And within that, we in southeastern and, and other parts of southern Puerto Rico being the periphery of that periphery. We're here with Ruth Santiago, learning a lot. Thank you. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back on Let's Talk to continue to have a conversation with Santiago. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all the programming you hear possible. Becoming a WDIY member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure WDIY will be here for the next person in our community to discover. Make your membership gift today at 610-694-8100 extension 4 or WDIY.org. We couldn't be here without you. You're listening to Let's Talk. You're here with Dr. Batts, and we're here with Ruth Santiago. We were just talking about the sacrifice zones. I had to pause, right? Like, that's heavy. How did we get here, and where are we going? When we think about this idea of health equity and environmental justice, yeah, well, it's you know this is um, now a focus of the Biden administration. Where, for example, in in the WEJAC, we are uh, there's a working group for an, a new executive order on environmental justice. Mm-hmm. That you know the initial one in 1992, 94 
signed by President Clinton needs updating for sure, and we're mm-hmm. hoping that that's going to happen soon. And that would mean that we have more, hopefully, a much more precision in what environmental justice means and how it's going to get executed throughout the federal agencies. What are your hopes and dreams when you think about environmental justice? I mean, unlimited resources. You wake up tomorrow, all is well. Walk us through what that looks like. I think primarily the transformation of our electric systems, um, starting in Puerto Rico and other places where the energy system is heavily based on the burning of fossil fuels Mm -hmm. like coal and gas, the so-called natural gas, Mm -hmm. which is really methane gas that can be just as polluting or more than coal and have it's sort of a substitution of one group of pollutants for another, right? Mm. The methane gas having lots of volatile organic compounds. So the transformation of that paradigm of energy generation, not just in terms of decarbonizing, but also decentralizing and democratizing Mm -hmm. and also cutting the dependence on fuel imports in the case of Puerto Rico. It's a terribly tragic situation when a hurricane strikes Puerto Rico and we have to depend on fuel imports, for example, generators, for emergency generators, and then the fuel can't arrive. Um, so, so the people are without power. Yeah, without power. Yes. For some time. Yes. You said up to a year in some, some yes. cases. Yes. And what about FEMA and disaster recovery support? What, what, is, what has that looked like? The FEMA... Work has been a disappointment. Uh, The allocation of resources has not gone to the right places and has not promoted the right policies in Puerto Rico and in many other places. FEMA is not, in spite of the fact that they use the the word resilience and Mm -hmm. and, and, um, recovery a lot, it's really not promoting that kind of policy. It's not putting the money where it needs to provide life-saving resiliency for people. And that could be done through helping to transform the electric system so that we have, as I mentioned, and as Dr. Catalina Leonis writes about, democratizing the electric system and decarbonizing and decentralizing and cutting the dependence. So you're looking to groups like FEMA to do some proactive things as well as reactive show up, support communities. Uh, Support community voices is a big thing that you talk about also, right? Absolutely. So the control would be in the hands of, of, of the people that are the closest to the issues. Yeah. So fortunately, now in the 21st century, um, we don't have to rebuild electric systems in the way, in the same way that they were operating in the 20th century. Okay. Um, fortunately, the technology, right, and, and I'm not talking just about a technology shift, but certainly that's a big part of it, allows us to do, of course, more renewables, mm-hmm. um, coupled with battery energy storage systems, energy efficiency programs, energy literacy, so that people know how to operate these that's right. things. And on a community basis can actually become empowered and be, instead of just passive consumers of energy, be actual what lots of engineers and people in the industry call prosumers. So prosumers. you can, as a community, for example, set up a project with rooftop solar panels, batteries, and be producers and inject energy into the grid, not just consume that's it, right? right? And that, so that's one of the things that we're doing in Puerto Rico with our community-based programming, pilot, small pilot um, rooftop solar projects. And FEMA and the government of Puerto Rico and other agencies should be supporting that instead of using a historic amount of money that that has been allocated for the electric system to rebuild the same thing, to do the business so as it's usual. it's an antiquated system. 
is yes. being rebuilt. Absolutely. Nothing changes 50 years from now. Where will we be? Oh, my God. I mean, you know, the climate crisis is upon us. We're so, so we're, we're not even we're talking 20 years then, huh? Uh, absolutely. We, we are experiencing these more intense hurricanes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we're experiencing more extreme weather events. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a recent example. Aside from Hurricane Maria five and a half years ago, mm-hmm. this past fall, we had Hurricane Fiona come in. And in Florida, they had Hurricane Ian. Yeah. Ian. And, and I heard there's going to be more. Right. And for example, with Fiona, it was it was mostly a tropical storm. Mm-hmm. And we really didn't expect to have as much damage. But were we surprised? Because a Category 1 hurricane, when it came into just the southwestern tip of Puerto Rico, knocked out the whole electric system again. Again. Wow. The whole thing. For weeks. And it was extreme weather, not so much in terms of winds, but in terms of rain. Okay. Just really huge amounts of his almost historic amounts of rain that caused a lot of damage in terms of also the grid but landslides um, flooding really scary situation and that's what's upon us already the climate crisis so you're talking we got the climate crisis we have a lack of preparedness and we have a uh, many challenges and holes in terms of the responses absolutely yeah scary stuff it is and, and that applies to almost everywhere along the uh, the Gulf Coast, for sure, and up, up to the eastern seaboard. I mean, what, Hurricane Sandy was where? All the way up to Vermont, I think, yeah, practically. Yeah. So these things affect way beyond Puerto Rico and the Caribbean right. and That's Florida. Right. And yeah. it, it feels like it's almost daily or monthly, right? Like, like that somewhere in the world you're seeing something occur. Uh, and this is new. So, so where do we go? What do we do? to be advocates, to have a voice, to make a change, to be part of the solution. What does the average listener do? I think we organize at the community level, right? Okay. We, we really... Um, You're talking local organizing. Yes, grassroots, okay. what, grassroots, grassroots organizing. Yeah. Communities becoming involved. I mean, there are certain opportunities that, that I guess communities have to push their way in the door to, mm-hmm. for example, the uh, local emergency planning committees. That's right. Like, that is a thing that m- many people don't even know exists, but it's something where the government has to create these these regions and tally what industries are in the area and what's going to happen when there's a disaster in the area to avoid even further damage to the population and, and the public health. Like, And I'm talking about, for example, in Texas, you know, um, chemical companies being flooded and spilling mm-hmm. toxic chemicals mm-hmm. into waterways and, and into flooded communities. Mm-hmm. Ohio, the train, right? Absolutely, saying. yeah. So some would say that crisis is big business, right? Uh, and then, I mean, another part of the conversation is when you begin to look at the minority spend on uh, these cleanups and crisis responses, there are still inequities. I mean, do, do you guys talk any about that? You know, th- th- that's interesting that you should say that. And I, I think there's a certain perspective that the whole climate crisis is a, bi- is a big business opportunity. That's right. I disagree. Okay, actually. say more about that. I think... Um, well, this is you're knowledgeable about that, so, so I'd love to hear. Yeah, so I think if we let the big oil, gas, coal companies, fossil fuel companies and in that industry push their so-called solutions, we're in serious trouble because Mm -hmm. they are now talking about things like carbon capture and hydrogen and blue hydrogen, et cetera, things that really perpetuate that industry rather than transform the production and use of energy. 
And so I think that we really need to work with community groups and, and government direct public investment in that transformation that's of right, that grid. Right. I think we're saying the same thing. What I'm saying is by not fixing the system, they continue to make money. It continues to build wealth for them. And as minority, as, as communities of color are suffering, the money's being made and sent outside of their, our communities. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you mentioned the emergency local planning committees. How do folks learn more about those? Okay. Well, they're contacting government officials. There's mm-hmm. a, every region, every area of the United States has to have local emergency planning committees okay. under the um, Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act. Okay. Right. So, so get on Google, call some folks, find out what's going on. And make them tell you what the industries are in the area. What are the potential uh, risks from those industries in the face of a disaster? And even in just, as you mentioned, in just a, a train derailment in Ohio, in Palestine, Ohio, for Palestine, example. Yeah. What is the response supposed to be? How is the company supposed to react? How is the government supposed to react? What can community groups do to be prepared for those kinds of things? education, involvement, organizing. You're talking basic community organizing, base building, that we are the ones that can make a difference across our Absolutely. Okay. You wrote a book called Earth Justice? Well, Earth Justice is an organization. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I um, serve on the board of trustees. I've co- litigated things with them for Mm -hmm. a long time and um, tell us about earth justice so it's um, an an environmental organization that is dedicated to doing legal work and in terms of both um, litigation and policy and legislation administrative work Mm -hmm. before different administrative agencies and what we're doing a lot of now is what is known as integrated resource planning for electric systems. Mm-hmm. So is that is basically if a place establishes like a renewable energy goal, how that gets an implemented over a course of 20 years, but with like maybe a five-year action plan. Okay. What do you do for fun? Dance salsa. <laughs> there you go. How long is your a- whole life? Anytime I can. Really? You've been dancing salsa your entire life? Well, you know, it's a family thing, and it's yeah. like a cultural and community thing that you we do. You didn't have to think about that. You just said dance I mean, I'm I always hoping I have a chance. There's a Puerto Rican club here. Uh-huh. This is where I grew up, basically. <laughs> My father was a big supporter of the Puerto Rican club, okay. and, you know, the Puerto Rican community here established that many years ago. And so, yeah, that's... Your people are very important to you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All people are very important, I think, to, mm. to us, right? That's a beautiful response. All people are very important. And it sounds like you work a lot, like your work is your passion. I do love it, yeah. You love it. Yeah. And so what's next for you? I know you're, you do too. <laughs> I can relate, right? Yeah. I, can, I mean, but you get so energized. It's like, it's like your work seems to be rejuvenating and restorative. Like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, there are obvious motivations here because yeah. um, it, having experienced not just Hurricane Maria, but, you know, ever since I can remember, I remember 1989, I was pregnant with my first son and um, Hurricane, what was that hurricane? Hugo, Hugo mm. was by. And the roof, the tin roof of the house where I was staying almost blew off. And, and we had a, a partial power outage that took about half the island um, without power. And so we've been experiencing this for a long time. And we know now that there are things that we can do. We have civil society proposals to transform the grid and the electric system and empower local communities in the process. This is real for you. This is not a 
academic or theoretical, right? Like like philosophical. This is real for you is what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. I love academics. I used to teach at the University of Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this now 100%. Yeah, it's kind of like a both end. Um, so, so in closing, what do you want to share with us? What do you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, so I think people who are in solidarity with Puerto Rico, that care to any extent about Puerto Rico and about communities throughout the U.S. in general, need to put pressure on FEMA. Make sure that FEMA is investing those historic amount of funds Mm -hmm. for disaster recovery in not rebuilding the same old thing, centralized, fossil-enabling undemocratic, mm-hmm. um, colonial um, right. systems, right. and instead listening to communities and promoting the transformation of, for example, electric systems and housing and other infrastructure in a way that really serves the public interest and saves lives. And how do they do that? So I think basically FEMA has to invest in communities directly and provide funding to community-based groups, nonprofits that are Grassroots doing... Grassroots organizations. Yes. Yeah, that are yes. connected to the people, led by the people. Exactly. Credible messengers, as we call them. Yes. Thank you, Ms. Santiago, for, for joining us, Ruth. It's a pleasure to have you back in Bethlehem. Thank you for all that you do. A lifetime of work around something that's really important. So we appreciate you joining us for this show. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk. I'm Dr. Batts. See you next time.